It's exciting to see you all here this morning. We're glad you made it, glad you dug out of the snow, and uh, we'll be looking forward to spending the morning together worshiping our Savior. If you could please stand with me as we begin our service with Psalm 19. Psalm 19. To the choir master, a psalm of David. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of our mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. What a great psalm to start this morning with contemplating both the the general revelation of God as we think of the the heavens declaring the glory of God and the specific revelation of God, the, the special revelation of God that he has given to us in his word, the law of the Lord, the testimony of the Lord, the precepts of the Lord found in his word. Let us not let us not lose sight of the treasure that we have in God's word. More to be desired is is this than than much fine gold? Do we really believe that? Do we think that? Do we do we feel that way, or or given the choice, would we say, "I'll take the much fine gold. You can have, you can have the precepts of the Lord. You can have the law of the Lord. Give me the much fine gold." Where's our heart? That's a challenging thought for all of us today. But may it be true that we see God's word for the value that it really holds. Let's sing together this morning. All hail the power of Jesus. 
think of that day that every knee will bow. We think of being with that multitude, that myriad in heaven, falling at Christ's feet when we join the everlasting song. And we think of where we are now. And we think of what we occupy our time with now, when we think of how we use our days now. And we are convicted when we stop and think of the time wasted on lesser pursuits. That everlasting song doesn't have to wait till we stand before Christ for our hearts to sing that song. May we today, this moment, begin to consciously, purposefully think on Christ throughout each day. May our, may our hearts and our minds not be distracted by the pleasures of this world. But may we, by your grace, have our, our minds and our hearts focused and riveted on Christ, even now, so that we can begin to experience a little bit of what it will be like in glory when we are, when we are occupied by nothing else than worshiping Christ. What a day that will be. Lord, is. Even in the psalm we read this morning, David prays, Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. And let the words of our mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. May that be true of us today, that the words of our mouths and the meditations of our heart, even as we sit under the preached word, our minds and our hearts can wander so easily. Let the words of our mouth and the meditations of our heart be acceptable in your sight today. In your name we pray.
morning. A couple of quick announcements. Uh, we have marriage class after service today, uh, so a lunch fellowship in that 1 p.m. We'll meet over in the library for marriage class. We've been having a great discussion on communication in marriage. I think we can all use some help in that, and uh, it's been a wonderful class so far. Uh, next Sunday, uh, January 21st, we do have an intersection meeting scheduled. Uh, so following the service, we'll have an intersection meeting uh, to cover updates on our ministry partners, uh, some of the, go through the financials of the church, uh, facilities updates, items like that. And then we'll also have a lunch fellowship potluck following that meeting. Children and teen ministries uh, start up this Wednesday, uh, January 17th at 6.30. So the adult equipping class will have fundamentals of the faith going on this semester. And then we'll have the full children and teen ministries uh, kicking off this Wednesday. This morning, during our time of prayer for gospel progress, I'll be reading two sections from our confession, which is the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith. I'd like for you to think of a couple of questions as I read these sections. Why do we pray each week for the advancement of the gospel if God is sovereign? Why do we send and financially support missionaries who are proclaiming the gospels overseas if God is sovereign in salvation? Chapter 20, section 3 and 4, on the gospel and the extent of its grace from our confession reads, The gospel has been revealed to sinners in various times and in different places, along with the promises and precepts describing the obedience it requires. The particular nations and individuals who are granted this revelation are chosen solely according to the sovereign will and good pleasure of God. This choice does not depend on any promise to those who demonstrate good stewardship of their natural abilities based on common light received apart from the gospel. No one has ever done this, nor can anyone do so. Therefore, in every age, the preaching of the gospel to individuals and nations has been granted in widely varying degrees of expansion and contraction according to the counsel of the will of God. The gospel is the only outward means of revealing Christ and saving grace and is abundantly sufficient for that purpose. Yet to be born again, brought to life, or regenerated, those who are dead in trespasses also must have an effectual, irresistible work of the Holy Spirit in every parts of their souls to produce in them a new spiritual life. Without this, no other means will bring about their conversion to God. Our God is sovereign, and our sovereign Lord uses the means of gospel proclamation to bring dead men to life, here in Escanaba, in Papua New Guinea, in the Philippines. So we pray towards this end. We evangelize the lost here in our commu community, and we send missionaries to the ends of the earth to proclaim the gospel, which is the only outward means of revealing Christ and saving grace. And because our Lord is sovereign, we have great confidence that he will accomplish all that he purposes and save those that he has chosen. Would you join me in prayer? Father, thank you that this gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, came to us here at Calvary to give us life according to your sovereign will and good pleasure. I pray that the knowledge of your sovereignty and the salvation of sinners would not make us lazy in our evangelism or unconcerned for missions, but would give us great confidence to proclaim the gospel to the lost and to pray regularly for unreached people groups and for our missionaries who are her heralding this message in faraway places. 
Lord, you have ordained the means of gospel proclamation to bring sinners to new life. Jesus Christ, our Lord, has commissioned us to make disciples of all nations. So may your sovereignty in all things, including salvation, energize us for this task. We pray these things for the sake of your name, through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. about the second coming of Christ, and our text this morning will do that as well, and so this song is called to encourage us to keep our eyes Sure. 
3. The first Sunday of this year, or should I say the, uh, the last Sunday of last year, as we anticipated the new year, we talked about the stages of spiritual growth and certainly asked the Lord to grant us the desire to grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ. And so then, last Sunday and this Sunday, we're considering together the coming of Christ, the second coming of Christ, which also spurs us on to continuing growth in Christ as well. You know, it's wonderful to think about the many different titles that Christ has given to us as His church and those that are particularly given to us in light of the second coming are, one of them is the bride of Christ. You who are in Christ are the bride of Christ. And He has purchased you with His blood. You belong to Him. You will never be separated from Him. And He is preparing you for the very day when you will see Him face to face. When you see Him, you will be like Him. And you will rejoice with joy that is unspeakable and filled with glory. You will not be left unfinished. You will be ready. You will be ready to be with Christ. And it will be your greatest joy. And that's what we'll look to this morning in the text. Would you stand with me one more time? And let's read together our text. Let's read it in unison, 2 Peter 3, 11-18. 2 Peter 3, 11-18. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to His promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved... Since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by Him without spot or blemish and at peace. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in the limb of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other Scriptures. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father, we come before You today as Your gathered people, the bride of Your Son. We are opening Your Word. We ask You, we invite You to speak to us powerfully through the Word. Let Your Word come to us in spirit and in power and full conviction. Cause us, like the Thessalonians, to turn from idols, to serve the living and true God, and to wait for Your Son from heaven. 
Father, cause us to be a waiting people. We are most often distracted from your second coming. We often delight in the things of earth more than the things of heaven. We are often so overwhelmed with the difficulties of this earth that we lose sight of the glories of heaven and Your return. Father, help us with this. Help us, we pray. Because it, is, it seems so difficult to maintain a focus on the second coming of Christ. Father, teach us in Your Word. Stir our hearts. Change our character. Change the way we process our lives, our decisions, our plans from day to day. That it would all reflect mindfulness of Your second coming in Christ. Father, that we would live differently. That we would face our trials differently. That we would approach the Word differently. That we would proclaim the Gospel differently. Father, we ask that You would do this in us today for Your glory, for the glory of the Son. We pray it in His name. Amen. Thank you. Please be seated. Have you ever been so excited about something that it was always on your mind? And it affected the way you feel? It affected your attitudes, your emotions? So much on your mind that it even affects the way you plan your activities throughout any given day. You ever had something on your mind so much it just was always present? We let earthly activities and events fill our minds like this. Something common to us. It changes the way we feel. It changes our plans. Think of Christmas, for example. How long before December 25th do you start thinking about Christmas? Something that's made much of in our country. And it affects our plans. It affects the way we feel. The Christmas decorations begin to go up and There's a sense in the home of delight for many people. What about a birthday or a wedding? How long before a wedding does a young man and a young woman begin to think about it? And like they wake up each morning thinking, I'm one day closer. I mean, this is why we have Advent calendars all over our children's walls, right? And they're Xing off the days until there's one day left or... Maybe that's what a bride does on her calendar as she's waiting for her wedding. Vacation. Times of recreation. Hunting season. There's so many things of earth that we think about way before they happen, and it affects the way we feel and plan. Maybe a family visit, a a sporting event. This is the way that the apostles were gripped with the second coming of Christ, except even much more so. And we're to feel that way as well about the second coming of Christ. I want to ask us all to consider honestly this morning as we return to this study in 2 Peter 3, 11-18, whether or not we are gripped like this by the second coming of Christ 
and the arrival of the new heaven and the new earth. Think about that. So many things of earth capture our minds, affect our emotions, and influence our plans. Does the second coming of Christ do this in you? And how should it? Peter describes the second coming of Christ as the day of the Lord. We've seen this in this text. And at this day, Christ will cause the heavens and the earth as we know it to be dissolved. Verse 12, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. So many of the things that we get excited about and affect us so deeply from day to day, when Christ returns, what will happen to them? They will be dissolved. They will melt away. Christ will then bring about a new heavens and a new earth over which He will rule physically, visibly, immediately, so that His personal righteousness will be the common and complete experience of every resident on the new heaven and in the new earth. Think about that. The character of a nation is influenced by its ruler. So Christ will be the ruling monarch of the new heavens and the new earth and everything about the new heavens and the new earth will take on the glory of His perfect righteousness. It doesn't get any better than that, right? Why does this not live in our minds and we wake up each morning thinking it's coming, I'm one day closer to the new heavens and the new earth and the return of Christ. Christ will lovingly, graciously usher every one of us who has believed in the Gospel, trusted Christ as Savior, surrender to Him as Lord, He will usher us into this eternal joy with Him forever. Isaiah 65, 17-19 is the promise way back in the Old Testament that, that Peter may be quoting from as he speaks of these things. For behold, God says, I create new heavens and a new earth and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. Think about that statement. The, the, the new heavens and the new earth will be so glorious, so captivating, that you will forget everything about the old. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in the sound, shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. Isaiah 66, 22 and 23, again, the promise. Remember here verse 13, but according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and new earth. These are the promises that very well may be in Peter's mind. For as the new heavens, this is Isaiah 66, 22 and 23, for as the new heavens and the new earth 
that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring and your name remain. <clears throat> from new moon to new moon, and from Sabbath to Sabbath, all flesh shall come to worship before me, declares the Lord. Paul spoke of these things. Romans 8, 18-25 gives us the promise of the redemption of our bodies. New bodies to go into the new heavens and the new earth. Releasing all of creation into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. All of creation will take on the glory of this newness that Christ will create. 1 Corinthians 15, 20-28 and 35-58 to speaks of the swallowing up of death in the final conquest and victory of Christ and the putting on of imperishability and immortality through that victory. Turn again to Revelation 21, would you, with me? Revelation 21. Revelation 21, verse 1. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. And they will be His people, and God Himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Verse 5, And He who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Look over to chapter 21 and verse 22. He explains and describes the new Jerusalem in these verses 9 through 21. And then he says in verse 22, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon or sh to shine on it. For the glory of God gives it, it, gives it light. And its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk. And the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day. And there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. But nothing unclean will ever enter it or anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. 
Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Through the middle of the street of the city also, on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. And He said to me, These words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent His angel to show His servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. So does this day that Peter has described for us in this chapter 3 and what we've read throughout these Scriptures, does this day have a regular presence in your mind? Does the second coming of Christ have such a profound influence on the way we think and the way we live from day to day? Does it enter our decision making, I wonder, so that it has a strong influence on what we say yes to today, tomorrow, the next day, and what we say no to? Does it play a part in guiding our decisions even? Does the second coming of Christ affect our emotions and attitudes in the midst of earthly happiness that disappoints? Or earthly trials that are so difficult? Does it help us? Again, the day of the Lord permeated and gripped the life of Peter and the other apostles as it should ours. I want, us, I want to exhort us even this morning to make this year the second coming of Christ part of the subject of our prayers and our time alone with the Lord each day. It's certainly something that we ought to be praying about. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. Right? The second coming ought to be a part of our prayers. But maybe take it one more step and just ask our Heavenly Father to help us to be thinking about the second coming, to long for it. Maybe this text will help us with that if He wills. And may that it would be our, our hope, our influence. As servants of Christ, it's certainly important, vitally important that we learn to live our, our lives with our affections and hopes directed toward His second coming. And so, the Apostle Peter is very clear with this. Verse 11 is really the introductory phrase to the rest of the text. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, he's been describing the dissolution of the, of the old heavens and the earth. Since all these things are in this way, as he's described, to be dissolved, then what sort of people ought you to be? And last week we looked at the first two. First of all, we've seen that we're to be awaiting people. We're to wait for the coming of the Lord. We're to wait how? 
he first, first of all begins by describing how we are to wait. And he uses two words, holiness and godliness. We talked about how holiness is to live uniquely, different than the world, separate from the world, separate from sin, separate from sin and worldly passions and devoted to Christ and His purposes. And our holiness, as we've read Peter together in time past, our holiness is often demonstrated by how we live in our relationships. Those who are waiting for the second coming of Christ are to live in a holy way in relationship to their government, for example, 1 Peter chapter 2. Or in a holy way to their employers, even when those, those government leaders and employers are extremely perverse and difficult, we live differently toward them. Or our spouses. Peter does a glorious job of describing what it's like to live even with a hostile spouse. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1-7. through And Christians who are waiting for the second coming of Christ have a hope beyond the changing of their disobedient spouse. What are they hoping in? Second coming of Christ. Something more glorious than this life. A day even when marriage will be no more because the relationships that exist among the people of God and between us and our Savior will be far better than anything we could ever have now here in this earth. We're to live a holy life even to our persecutors, as Peter describes, to the world, even to local church in chapter 4. Every relationship we have is to be lived in a holy way and that holiness is motivated by the hope of the second coming. He also describes godliness here and we've talked about this. To be, to be godly is to be mindful of the presence of God everywhere we go and, and in all that we do that God is here with me. God is within me. God is all around me. And of course, the second coming helps us to be godly because we know that He is returning and we will see Him face to face. To be godly means to be mindful of piety toward God, seeking to worship Him and trust Him and love Him and submit to Him and thank Him and honor Him and reflect Him in all that we do. And wouldn't it be fitting that we would live holy and godly lives when our King returns? That's how we're to be waiting, but Peter also describes, and we looked at this already, what we're to be waiting for and he says in verse 12, we're be waiting for the coming of the day of God. We're waiting for, we're again waiting in verse 14, waiting for these things. To wait is not a passive thing, it's to live expectantly with this eager anticipation of Christ's thief-like return. Notice how the text says that. Actually, it says in, in previous verses, let's see, verse Verse 10, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. We're looking for it. We're looking for its signs. Jesus, I think, illustrated this waiting very well in the Olivet Discourse of Matthew 24 and 25, especially with the parable of the ten virgins, waiting for their bridegroom, keeping their lamps, as the old song goes, keeping their lamps trimmed and burning. Right? They have oil and the wicks are ready to be lit in preparation for the bridegroom's coming. So Peter says we're to be waiting. He also says we're to be hastening. Notice that word. We're to be waiting for and hastening 
the coming day of the Lord, to hurry it along. Well, how do we do that? To urge it, to, to desire it earnestly, to accelerate it. Well, what is, what is, he, what is Peter talking about? We can't change the timing of the Lord's second coming. What he's talking about here is that as God's chosen people, we, as His people, have been chosen by Him to be His instruments of furthering His divine purposes. Our labor in the proclamation of the Gospel and our prayer for the salvation of the nations toward the evangelization of the lost is part of Christ's chosen means to hasten His second coming. Matthew chapter 24 is probably the clearest text that describes that, that sort of hastening along. I can read that verse to you. Matthew 24 Verse 14, Jesus says, And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So apparently, Jesus has planned as the king of his creation and as the king of his church to choose us to go out to be the instruments of the proclamation of the gospel. And when all who have, whom he has chosen have heard the gospel, his final plans will commence. One commentator wrote, Certainly aggressive evangelism and believing intercession supported by the holy lives of His saints are divinely appointed means of furthering God's purpose and program. So we wait and hasten the coming day of the Lord. But that's not all we're, we're waiting for here. We're waiting for the entrance of the new heaven and the new earth. Peter says, these, at this day the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved. The heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. And we're also waiting for the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells. There's a great contrast there. And we've talked about that. This word for new is certainly a, a wonderful word expressing newness of quality, fresh, glorious, no trace of evil or sin. There will be a perfect reign of righteousness. All things will be in perfect agreement with the character of God, His will and His law. And Jesus will be the immediate, physical, visible, reigning world ruler. Secondly, Peter calls us, as we spoke about last week, not only to be waiting people, but diligent people. Verse 14, Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these... Be diligent. Be diligent. As we have this attitude of waiting, we can no longer live idly, indifferently, or indecently, as if the second coming of Christ was not our future. And so he calls us to diligence. The first aspect, he says there, be diligent to be found without spot or blemish. To be diligent, remember, means to be on sharp and urgent duty. To be eager and zealous. To make every effort toward a specific ambition. And what's the ambition that Paul says? To be found by Him without spot or blemish. What does that mean? It first of all refers to Christ's second coming judicial findings. Now it's interesting, this word, to be found by Him. Does that bring any other text to your mind? 
when, when the writers of the apostle talk about being found by him, it seems to point to that future day when we will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. How will you be found? In what condition will you be found when you stand before Christ? See, here's, there's only two options there. You will either be found dressed in His righteousness, or you will be found still cloaked in your own sinfulness. That's all the options that there are. This refers to Christ's second coming. And so we're to be diligent, first of all, to make certain of our salvation. Or as, as Peter puts it in 2 Peter 1.10, to make certain of our calling and election. Or as Paul puts it, to be diligent to be found by Him, not with the righteousness that, com- that comes from, that of our own, that comes from trying to keep the law, but a righteousness that comes through faith. The righteousness that comes from God that depends on faith. Remember that? Philippians chapter 3 and verse 9. 1 Peter 1.7 speaks of the trials that we face in this life that will prepare us for the day of standing before God and how those trials prove our faith to be genuine as we endure them and continue to trust in Christ. And so through those trials, our faith will be found to be genuine, much more precious than gold, and it will result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ when He comes. So be diligent to make certain of your calling and election. 2 Peter 1.10 Be diligent to be found in His righteousness, not your own sinfulness. To be diligent to be found with genuine faith. And certainly we're called to be diligent to prove that our justification is genuine by an increasing growth in Christ-likeness. 1 John 2.28-3.3 John concludes that section by saying that when we see Him, we'll be like Him. And everyone who has this hope in Him, what? Purifies Himself, even as He is pure. So we're we're to be found by Him without spot or blemish. has to do with being found in Christ's righteousness. And, And then secondly, to be found diligent, to be found at peace. Certainly at peace with God, at peace with others, at peace with the future and even the present. We've talked about that. Now, let's go on to some new material this morning. Number three, how else does Peter say that the future day of the Lord should affect us? We're to be waiting, people. We're to be diligent, people. And then thirdly, we're to be counting, people. Look at verse 15. Here's the next imperative. And count. Count the patience of our Lord as salvation. Just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given to him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. Counting people. What is Peter exhorting us to? There's a long time between Christ's first advent and his second. He came... As a baby, born of a virgin, lived a perfect life, died a substitutionary death, rose from the dead, ascended, and now sits at the right hand of the Father. And that was 2,000 years ago. Is that a long time to you? It is kind of a long time, isn't it? 
Those who lived with Christ, are, their bodies are in the grave. The apostles, their bodies are in the grave. We're waiting for the coming of Christ. What are we to do with such a long period of time? How are we to think about it? Does that ever bother you? It's been so long. We're to consider this time as something very specific, something very strategic. Count or consider this time before the Christ's second coming as exactly what? God's patience. The patience of our Lord. Count this time of patience as an opportunity for salvation. God's being patient with there being such a long period of time. Like, like Peter said earlier, you can look at this long period of time and think, well, God's kind of forgotten about us. His promises are unfulfilled. Or you can say, well, this is God's patience. This is purposeful patience. This time is given by our merciful God, granting to sinners an opportunity to be saved and room to repent. That's what this time is all about. This time echoes with the herald's voice saying, like Paul said, working together with Him, then we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For He says, in a favorable time, I have listened to you, and in the day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. We must never fall into the trap of thinking considering this time between Christ's first advent and His second advent, that this is an opportunity to satisfy our earthly desires with what this world has to offer. We shouldn't think of it this way. Hey, this is time for me to eat, drink, and be merry. Tomorrow, we won't exist. Is that how we live our lives? What do we do with our time here? This this time of God's patience and salvation. It certainly shouldn't come to our minds to be slothful, to sit by slothfully because there's plenty of time before Christ's return. Instead, Peter exhorts us, we should learn to count this time as the Lord's patience as salvation. That means counting this time as certainly the Lord's patience toward us so that we may, if we haven't, Repent and believe in the Gospel. Second Peter 3.9 Remember that verse? The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promises. Some count slowness, but is patient toward you. Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Do you ever think, maybe you're here today and you have never trusted in Christ as Savior and Lord. You've never received and believed in the Gospel for your own forgiveness and the granting of eternal life, do you ever think, I've got plenty of time? Peter says, don't, don't think that way. This time is patience for your salvation. Receive Christ now. You don't know how much longer you may have. You don't know how much longer we have until Christ's return. We should also count this time as the Lord's patience toward us so that we may proclaim the Gospel to those who are still without Christ. Again, 2 Peter 3.9 reflects that. This is time for the Christian church to be busy about proclaiming the Gospel, including the good news of Christ's second coming. Time will run out. And there are still many who do not know God. 
that ought to break our hearts. That there are so many yet all over the world who do not know of Christ. How many people in our community have never heard the gospel? And there are so many churches here. I remember years ago sitting down with a family who I had the, the privilege of doing a funeral for. They were, they were a family from the community, didn't attend our church, and the Lord created a connection there. I remember it was a very, very unexpected death, very difficult. In fact, it was a suicide, very painful. And I sat down with the family. I'd never met them before this and sat down with the, with the, with the family around the kitchen table and, and we were just kind of talking through things. And at some point along the, the way of our talking, I began to share the gospel with them. And I just looked at their eyes and it came to my mind that I wondered, have they ever heard this before? And so I asked them, I said, have you ever heard the gospel explained like this before? And they said, no, we've never heard this. And I've never I, I, I can't get that out of my mind. I've never had that experience before that in the United States of America. You think everybody knows something about the Bible or Christ or the Gospel. We have unreached peoples right here. And so this time that we have between the first and second advents, this is God's patience to us. Giving us time to proclaim the Gospel so that many will come to repentance. And certainly... We should count this time as the Lord's patience toward us so that we may work out our own salvation as God works in us. This isn't the time to push the pause button on sanctification. Right? Philippians 2, 12-13 speaks of God working in us that we may work out our own salvation and grow in the likeness of Christ. To submit completely to the Lordship of Jesus Christ who will soon return in power and glory with much grace. You know, we are called between the first and second coming of Christ to be very fruitful with the Gospel. That's the point. We've been given a treasure, the Gospel, to be fruitful in how we proclaim it, to be fruitful in how we receive it, to be fruitful in how we apply it to our lives so that we may grow in Christ-likeness. This is what Jesus' point was when He spoke of the parable of the talents. In Matthew chapter 25. Remember how the master came and he gave, he gave some number of talents to one servant and a greater number of talents to another servant and then one talent to a final servant. I believe the talent in that, in that parable is the Gospel. It's the gift of the Gospel. And each servant is either a believer or an unbeliever. And when the master returns, he returns to discover how they dealt with the gospel. The point of the parable is to say that our response to the gospel will determine the master's reception of us when he returns. So are we people who have received the gospel and therefore proclaim the gospel according to the grace given to us? And notice, two of the servants both received the gospel and were fruitful with the gospel and invested the gospel, but they had different amounts of, of talent, right? They were, they were given a different and a varying degree of gospel grace, in a sense. And so God doesn't, doesn't come back and say, well, this guy, this guy uh, did more with the gospel based on what I gave him than this person. No, he, 
he, he gives to us and rewards us based on what He gives to us. Even though one may be much more fruitful than another. This is a gracious thing when God, each, both of those first two servants were commended by their master. There was only one that wasn't. Which was that? The one who did nothing with the gospel. Who buried it. That's the point. Are we, are we those who do not appropriate the gospel, do not receive it, and therefore do certainly not announce it or proclaim the gospel? And that's the servant who buried his talent and did nothing with it. This is the time of God's patience and salvation in which we are to make much of the gospel and apply the gospel and multiply it and advance the gospel by receiving it and proclaiming it to all who will hear. What kind of servants are we as we anticipate the Master's return? Think about it. Peter underscores his exhortation. Notice, in a very unique way, in fact, he appeals to the writings of Paul. Count the patience of our Lord as salvation. This time of waiting. Do that. Count it as the patience of our Lord and fill this time with gospel productivity. Just as our beloved brother Paul wrote to you according to the wisdom given to him as he does in all his letters when he speaks of them in these matters. Just as our beloved brother Paul wrote, Paul is in agreement with Peter about these things, about the coming of Christ. I wonder what text Peter has in mind. Where does Paul agree with Peter about how we should be thinking and anticipating the second coming of Christ and living accordingly? Maybe it's, if I had to guess, maybe it would be 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. You could turn there with me if you like. 1 Thessalonians 5. This is such a profound exhortation that sounds a lot like what Peter's saying. First Thessalonians 5, verse 1. Paul writes, Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anyone anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Ah, that's the same thing Peter said in verse 10, wasn't it? Like a thief in the night, the day of the Lord will come. Verse 3, while people are saying, there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. Husbands, we should talk to our wives about that one and get a little more angle on the suddenness of labor pains. That's how the Lord's return will be. But you are not in darkness, verse 4, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light. Children of the day. We're not of the night or of the darkness. So then, let us not sleep as others do. But let us keep awake and be sober. For those who... Sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with Him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. 
but that sounds a lot like what Peter's exhortation is. And notice that Peter says Paul wrote Scripture. This is a very interesting section here. The next sentence, right after that first sentence in verse 16, there are some things in them, in the writings of Paul, that are hard to understand, which the ignorant, unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other Scriptures. Paul, or Peter also speaks of Paul writing according to, according to the wisdom given him. Let me just take a moment to defend here from Peter's writings the fact that Paul was inspired by God to write Scripture. The Word of God. First of all, you think of the wisdom given to him. That's the same kind of wording that Paul used of his own writings in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. According to the wisdom given to me, they wrote the Scriptures. And Paul is speaking of the inspiration of Scripture right there in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Wisdom given to them from the Holy Spirit so that what they wrote was the Word of God. But notice also that Peter says about Paul's writings that they are Scriptures because these ignorant, unstable people twist the Scriptures to their own destruction. Speaking of Paul's writings and comparing Paul's writings as another of the same category, Scriptures. Now remember this. Scripture is the word the Bible uses to refer to itself. It doesn't use Scripture, the word Scripture, for any other reason. It's speaking of itself. Holy, sacred writings. Scripture is the title the Bible uses for itself. And so Peter rightly and carefully uses this word not only to refer to the rest of the Word of God, but also Paul's writings. And so we know here, and we've read already, that Peter and Paul both wrote or spoke of these matters. These matters. The matters of the second coming of Christ and the life that is to be lived in anticipation of the second coming. So there's powerful agreement between Peter and Paul as they both wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that demands we take heed to what they say and let the second coming thinking influence the way we live our lives, the way we apply ourselves by God's grace to be waiting and diligent, counting people mindful of the second coming of Christ. Now as Peter is drawing our attention to Paul's writings, he transitions to another aspect of this kind of people, of the kind of people we ought to be while living mindfully of the second coming. He says here, not only are we be counting people, previously diligent in waiting, but also careful people. Take care, he says. And so we'll pick up there next week and look at what it means to be careful people. Taking care not to twist the Scriptures. Not to be dragged along by the lawlessness of those who may tempt us to live lawlessly instead of holy and godly in our living. Let's stand together and we'll close in prayer. Heavenly Father, it's good that we can spend time thinking about the second coming of Christ. 
And we're called to think about it now, even as we anticipate this, these next few moments as we share the Lord's table together. Lord Jesus, you, you told us that you would not take the fruit of the vine, share the Lord's Supper until you do it with us when we are with you in your kingdom. And so we do it here, waiting for your return, anticipating it. Father, as we have asked already, may we be waiting people, eagerly anticipating, living holy and godly lives. May we be diligent, diligent people, striving to grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ, growing increasingly in unity with one another, certainly making certain of our peace with you and your salvation in our lives. We pray that you would teach us these things. May we be counting people. Help us not to consider this time as something that can be spent and wasted on worldly things but that we should indeed use it as you have designed for us to. To multiply the gospel. To receive it, first of all, for our own selves. And to proclaim it to others. Father, we ask if there is someone here this morning that does not know you, that they would consider your son's second coming. And that they would indeed fear for he who comes is the judge of all. Cause them to consider, Father, this morning that they will stand before you. And if they resist you now, if they resist your word now and do not trust in Christ and his saving work alone, that they will stand before you in their own sinfulness, as any of us would, apart from you. So by that knowledge, may they be compelled, Father, to turn to you, to turn to Christ, and to ask for His righteousness, for His salvation work to apply to them, for the cross to make them clean before you, to remove their guilt and to absorb their punishment. Father, we ask you to work in our hearts, according to your word, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. I'll ask the, the men to serve communion with me as we sing.
table, and it's my intention to meditate on the saving work of Christ for us as it assures us in death and gives us confidence in His return. Does the saving work of Christ do that for you? Does it give you an assurance as you think of death and give you confidence 
at his return. As you consider that, let's examine ourselves so that we may take of the Lord's table in a worthy way. The Apostle Paul writes to us in 1 Corinthians 11, 27-32, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. The Apostle Paul exhorts us to examine ourselves as we eat and drink. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, discerning the body of Christ, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we're disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Well, how can we know if we can receive the Lord's Supper in a worthy way? Well, first of all, are you trusting in Christ alone for salvation? You discern that Christ is sufficient for your salvation. That's important. Don't take of the supper if you're trusting in something in addition to Christ or other than Christ to gain eternal life. Just listen and hear the sufficiency of Christ in His death on the cross in our behalf. Another question you might ask yourself as you examine your heart is, am I turning from sin? When I see the cross, do I see it as something that is driving me away from sin or does it give me an excuse to keep sinning? Of course it doesn't. It drives us from sin. Do you see that happening in your life? Is the work of the cross causing you to grow in repentance, turning from sin? And then another question would be, am I trying to live at peace with my brothers and sisters in Christ? The people that Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians 1 were living selfishly in the body of Christ and destroying one another by their selfishness. And so Paul calls us to consider that because the cross of Christ is, is designed to bring us together to God. Ephesians 2 talks about that. So is that your heart? Are you trusting in Christ alone? Are you seeking to repent of sin? And are you seeking to walk in unity with your brothers and sisters in Christ. Let me give you a few moments to examine your hearts before the Lord. As we take the bread and the cup and think about the body and blood of Christ this morning, our hearts can be filled with thanksgiving. Because death, through Christ's death, our death is no longer victorious over us. It is a victory for us in Christ. 
that we would be with Christ. And certainly at his return, there is no longer any dread or fear of judgment. Listen to these words as we take the bread and consider Christ's body. Romans 5, 6 through 11 is actually a gospel text that causes us to consider the second coming a little bit here. Listen. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. That's speaking of a future day. That because Christ's death is for us now, we've received it by faith, we are cleared of every trace of guilt and free then from the wrath of God and judgment against us. We shall be saved by Him from the wrath of God. We need not fear the second coming of Christ. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by His death, by the death of His Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. Again, to the future day, we will be saved, we'll be rescued from the wrath of God on the day of wrath because of Christ's faithfulness to intercede for us and to be our advocate and to be our eternal propitiation. We shall be saved by His life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. And that is amazing. So for the believer in Christ, the death, the life, the death, the intercession causes us to consider the second coming and no longer dread it for fear of God's wrath, but to actually then what? Rejoice that we will be with God and see Him in the Son face to face from dread to joy at the second coming of Christ because of the cross. Now that is a reason to give thanks today as we take the bread and remember the death of Christ. Brothers, would you stand? Is there the microphone? Okay, good. Tim, would you give thanks for
Corinthians 15, 54 to 57 says, When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, 
who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Eat this in remembrance of our Lord Jesus Christ. As we take the drink, remember the blood of Christ. I think of Hebrews 2, 14 through 15. This text shows us how the death of Christ completely removes the fear of death for us. It says, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise took part of the same things. Christ took on himself flesh and blood. He took on human nature. Why? So that through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is, the devil. And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. The fear of death is slavery, isn't it? We naturally fear death. We're made for life. Sin enter the world. Death through sin. We're enslaved to the fear of death. We don't have any control over it. Not really. And so Christ entered our fallen human condition without sin, took on flesh and blood, and lived a perfect life, and then died on the cross in our place so that He could give us His righteousness and remove our guilt, remove the reason for which the law demands death of us, our sin. And in so doing, destroyed any threat of Satan who's just there to accuse and say, look at that sinner, they deserve to die. God, your law says they deserve to die. And God says, look, my son took their sin and their guilt upon himself and totally fulfilled the demands of the law, so they get life instead. If we trust in Christ, we get what Jesus earned for us. Isn't that great? Death no longer has any hold on us. We're not, we're not under the slavery of death anymore because we don't have to fear it. He delivered us. That's something to give thanks for. Brothers, would you stand again? Jeremy, would you give thanks?
Hebrews 9, 27, 28. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for Him. Drink this in remembrance of Would you stand with me? 1 Thessalonians 4, 14-17 brings this to a 
wonderful conclusion. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, do you believe that? And do you believe it more than fact? Do you believe it is for you? Have you cried like the publican, let this atonement be for me? Have mercy on me, the sinner. Well then, if you have in faith, it's for you. If for since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with Him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left unto the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who are fallen asleep. In fact, they will precede us. For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, and the voice of the archangel, and with the, trump of the, uh, the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and who are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Let's sing again and then we will be dismissed. Why do heaven see the waters fall?